Alan, I'll hand straight over to you. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Matt. Uh, <coughs> well, let me start by saying that I feel kind of the odd one out on the panel, uh, mostly because my name isn't Colin, <laughs> but also because I am, by trade, really a political theorist, not a politi political economist. Uh, I'm not a specialist in the kinds of things that you've all demonstrated such excellent specialism in the last uh, day or so, and I've learned a lot from it. Um, but so I come from the direction of political theory, although one who has as one who has had an interest in talking about British politics, understanding New Labour and the kinds of state that New Labour is involved in trying to uh, constitute. Uh, and I would say from what I've heard, my work is probably closest to I think that Paul Langley is doing and some of what, what Matt said. Uh, but I want to try and speak, at least at first, as a political theorist and draw attention to the fact that the title of our event, or the subtitle of our event, is the Economics, Politics and Ethics of Response. Have we talked about ethics very much? Well, I think we have. I'm not sure that we've talked about it very explicitly. So let me try and talk at least uh, for a moment explicitly about ethics, although in a very particular way. And point out that the idea of ethics, of course, comes from the word ethos, which refers to some idea of character. The way in which we do things, the way in which we conduct ourselves is our ethos. And one thing that political theory has uh, long been concerned with, and I don't think it is concerned with it enough at the present time, but historically it has been very concerned with, is precisely the way in which regimes, in the broadest sense of the term, not just states and governments, but overall societal and governmental regimes, either reflect the ethos of a people or constitute a people as possessing or exercising a particular kind of ethos. So if you read Plato, there's a whole book about the kind of character that different regimes produce. He talks about the democratic character, for instance. Democratic characters are like gaily coloured things. They're like women and children, Plato says, skittering around from one thing to the other. Uh, oligarchic regimes are full of people who are jealous of their status, trying to guard it all the time, nervous about falling down, much like contemporary Britain, which perhaps is an oligarchy. So there is a concern in the history of political theory with thinking about how regimes create these kinds of characters. And modern states, I would argue, uh, have been and are, continue to be highly active in trying to constitute a certain kind of ethos in their citizens. They do that primarily through education. One of the things that a modern state is, to paraphrase Gellner, paraphrasing Weber, is the body with the monopoly of legitimate education. Also through forms of social regulation, and particularly through the invention, endless invention, I would say, of ever more mechanisms to try and act on individuals and try and constitute or create some kind of ethos within them. States are not the only agent that does this kind of thing, but they are, I think, a significant and an important one. So the question I asked myself and I asked of New Labour well, was what kind of ethos is this government, this administration trying to constitute? What kind of character do they want people to have? And that's where I came to intersect with the financialization literature. Because it seems to me that the primary intention of a lot of what New Labour has done has been to try and create precisely a financialized ethos. They have accepted certain constraints on their own uh, capacity to intervene economically. They've accepted certain ideas about rational actors, globalization, and so forth. They have then decided that what they will try and do is constitute in individuals a certain kind of ethos able to respond to this new economy, to respond in a financialized way, to take on certain kinds of risk, to become certain kinds of capable investor in themselves, to see themselves as a form of capital, to be trained up, skilled up, marketed, dressed up, taken out and put to, uh, converted into value. 
They have also tried to constitute individuals as certain kinds of possessive economic actor, using financial markets, investing in them, perceiving themselves, their orientation to the world, to the future, in a financialized way. And New Labour has created, I would say, various more or less innovative <coughs> policy instruments and technologies to do that, to help it cultivate this kind of financialized ethos, to generate persons who will perceive events as investment opportunities and take responsibility for their own financial well-being. Now, again, other agencies are important here, and we've already heard about the influence of certain kinds of media, magazines like Buy to Let, the property programs uh, that Matthew mentioned, the kind of cultural circuits of capital, Nigel Griff calls them, that create the sort of collective understandings that shape certain financial behaviours, but also popular attitudes towards property uh, and investment. And the finance industry itself is part of this process, the way it markets itself and advertises its products. But in government, in this government, uh, education and welfare have been two key domains where they have tried to constitute this ethos of financialization. In education, for instance, you'll probably be aware that in the 80s under the Thatcher administrations, the uh, incorporation of enterprise education and business studies was a key priority. But what New Labour has done has encouraged personal financial education to train children, primary school and secondary school, in thinking about money and their own financial well-being in certain kinds of ways. Uh, this month, a, the school term has just started, and the personal, social, and health curriculum has now become the personal, social, health, and economic curriculum, promoting economic well-being. That will be that is now a stated curriculum goal. Financial skills have been incorporated into the maths GS GCSE again, starting uh, just this month. In his report on generic financial advice, published just a couple of months ago, Otto. Thorison said this, I believe that good money sense needs to be as much a part of people's lives in the 21st century as healthy eating and keeping fit. And that's the point here, that economic well-being is seen as being equivalent to healthy eating and keeping fit. It's an activity that individuals practice upon themselves. It's not an activity that the government takes some kind of responsibility for. It's not a collective activity. It's like eating and keeping fit. It's something that you do for yourself, and you must be created as that kind of person. But another main place in which this has occurred is in welfare and welfare reform. In part, in reforms such as Sure Start, part of Sure Start is about changing the spending behaviours of individuals. I have a friend whose job is essentially to go to the supermarket with people and help them spend their money in certain kinds of ways. Pension reform, of course, the housing market that Matthew's talked about, but also particularly in things like the Savings Gateway and my particular interest, the Child Trust Fund. Forms of asset-based welfare, which appear on the surface to be motivated by a certain concern about redistribution of wealth, egalitarian ideals perhaps, but I would argue are in fact primarily about opening up a space through which government can act on the ethos of individuals. For instance, the Child Trust Fund emerges from a series of debates about the possibilities of asset-based welfare, some of which emphasise the egalitarian dimension, say this is, this is an important part of a national commitment to individuals, to children. We should, for instance, use inheritance taxation to produce a national fund to distribute to young people. But the government was more persuaded explicitly persuaded by a different kind of argument that, to quote uh, Michael Sheradden from Washington, incomes feed people's stomachs but assets change their minds. 
was attracted to the idea that through asset-based policies, you would create people who would basically be better people, who would be more future-oriented, who would be more open to risk, who would be more willing, able, and canny consumers of banking and financial services. So, for instance, with the Child Trust Fund, uh, which if you don't know, you probably do, but the Child Trust Fund essentially is a voucher given to everybody when they have a child to put into a special account to which they can add up to a certain amount. The government was very clear from the start that this would be provided by private providers and particularly that there would be investment options, not just simple savings options. And they wanted people to take the investment accounts and they even declared the policy a slight failure when people mostly went for the safe, low-risk savings accounts rather than the higher-risk investment accounts. But the Child Trust Fund was also conceived as being explicitly tied into education. In the words of Margaret Hodge announcing the policy in 2005, the Child Trust Fund will give everyone an asset which will make their financial education real, not just theoretical. <coughs> so the Child Trust Fund will be part of the process of learning in the schools, and that's one reason why the, the economic wellbeing strand has come in now, because the Child Trust Funds go back to 2003, the kids who have them will be starting primary school now. So this is all about providing mechanisms then for various agencies to act on people in a kind of process of re-education. Just consider that if you go to your antenatal class now, you will be provided not just with information on the hospital and giving birth and caring for your child, you will be given information on your child trust fund. You will be given leaflets perhaps in the post or sent to you by banks and other agencies wanting you to take out your child trust fund with them. And these uh, forms of promotion will very explicitly uh, suggest to you ways in which you should think about yourself and your child and its future. So here, for instance, is uh, what was the Lloyd's Children's Mutual. Presumably its chain name has changed again. <laughs> their advertising literature says this. In a nutshell, the Child Trust Fund is about your child and their future. It's about giving your child an 18th birthday present when you can cash the funds in, which could help them pro provide them with a flying start to their adult life. This is the difference you, your family and friends could make to your child's future. Halifax presented a picture of a little girl building a model canary wharf tower. I kid you not, I kid you not, with slogans saying, build a better future for your children. And advised parents, this isn't meant to think you're a nervous parent, not quite sure, who, how do I be a good dad? What do I have to do? Is it playing football? Is it changing nappies? No, the happiness of your children is the biggest investment we ever make. We all want the best for our children. The best thing about bringing up children is watching how their hopes and dreams develop. Some are quite predictable, being top of the class, winning sports day, learning to drive, getting the keys to their first house. But others, given the right financial support, could be life or career forming, bringing fulfilment to their lives and to yours. You can help to give your child that support when they reach 18 years of age with the Halifax Child Trust Fund. <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> this is a particular aspiration and a particular conception of parenthood and thinking about the future of your child. The government's own television advertising campaign used the slogan, what will yours grow into? With pictures of children dressed as stockbrokers, as judges and all those other careers which we aspire for our children to have. So where does such an approach stand now, given the changes in assets and banking and property in recent times? Well, firstly, it seems to me that we need to just pause and remark how amazing it is that at the same time as limiting the extent to which 
corporate kinds of investment activity could be an object of national governance, New Labour made individual personal saving and individual financial behaviour a primary object of policy, which is extraordinary, I think. Now, maybe that seems like a less tenable model now than it did when they first thought of it. I don't think, however, that asset-based welfare as such will be delegitimated by the current events. I think it might be or potentially could be delegitimated to the extent that asset-based welfare is motivated by a concern to shift responsibility from the state to the individual and to financialise individuals. But there are other ways of thinking about asset welfare in terms of egalitarianism but also democracy, in terms of giving people a political stake, some kind of power over economic organisations or state economic organisations, whatever it might be. One could think about not just financial capability, perhaps, but economic political capacity of individuals and collectives. Finally, I think we should reflect on the extent to which New Labour has, in a sense, been caught out of the heart of a contradiction. It's been concerning itself with cultivating this ethos of financialisation while ignoring the widespread promotion of a certain kind of consumerist culture, the kind of individual acquisitive culture that Matthew talked about yesterday in one of his questions. But it has particularly focused throughout these policies on modifying the behaviour and changing the ethos of the poor and the low income. They have been a primary object of these kinds of policies. Not the sole object, not, not by any means, but a lot of the education is targeted at certain kinds of place, certain kinds of income bracket. Sure Start is particularly about uh, kind of poor and low income. And in doing so, in focusing on that section of society, Labour has clearly neglected to try and cultivate any kind of wider pro-social ethos and has let the behaviour of the rich go largely unquestioned until this week when everyone's suddenly got all moral. <laughs> I would go so far to suggest, using Will Hunt's terms yesterday, that in its obsession with a certain kind of rational actor market model, you know, they came to apply that to the social life as well as to economic life, has precipitated a kind of social recession, no problem. And we might want to see the behaviour of bankers and financiers as a systemic failure in our ethical system as well as in our economic system, which means we need to think about revivifying certain kinds of collective social institutions, about validating certain kinds of pro-social ethos, re-establishing intellectually, culturally, institutionally, the inseparability of ethical and economic behaviour, which I haven't got to tell political economists that. And there is therefore, I think, a political opportunity, if I could put it that way, it's an political space, as Matthew was partly talking about earlier. We are in, you call it Planian dilemma, we could call it a kind of interregnum to invoke a certain kind of Gramscian term. The old is dying, but the new is not yet born. And part of what is at stake at the moment is precisely, as you said, who gets the blame? What kind of moral panic or moral crisis will this be? Will we, and you suggested we might, <coughs> and, and to Jonah as well, continue to blame the poor and the low pay for their irresponsibility, or will we in fact reflect more widely and use the opportunity to constitute, or at least begin trying to constitute, a different sort of ethos, <coughs> and frankly, a better one. Brilliant. Thank you very much.